Hi, I'm Princess Grace, and welcome to Warehouse 69, a Warehouse 13 watch podcast. This is my co-host, Timmy. Hi, Timmy. Hi, uh, today we'll be looking at the uh, second episode of Warehouse 13. I meant to look up the title, and I did not. I believe this one is called Resonance. Okay. So, uh, we open up with a uh, bank teller making some small talk, and uh, I believe, I don't know, do we open up just like in the bank, or do we uh, see Artie and them talking about it? I forget. I think we called open in the bank. Okay. Because the first thing in my notes is, love me a good heist. Right. Which yeah, would have implied we started in the bank. If there was something with Artie, you probably would have written about that. Yeah, it's got a very, uh... It's got a very clearly a heist opening. There's a crime happening here. Right. So we see, uh, a couple people making small talk at the bank. And the bank teller seems to notice someone walking in and someone walks in with a trench coat filled with uh, like car speakers mm-hmm. and just like opens up their coat and you can see visible uh, like sonic waves crashing through the uh, facility. Yeah, you know, a public flasher. That's what this sort of thing happens all the time. Right. Then they just sort of cut away before they step, show any more detail on it. No, we do, we do see the guy uh, on the cell phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was making a call as they walked in and started blasting them with sounds. Remember, kids, always use sound responsibly. Right, it's very important. That's what we do here every day. Yeah, we, we here at Warehouse 69 want you to use sound responsibly, just like we're doing right now. Boy, I sure hope neither of us robs a bank using sound or anything, because, like, We'd look like hypocrites, or at least right. I would. This will be a really embarrassing thing to get thrown in our face after we uh, perform a bank heist with yeah, uh, like, sound. Yeah, like they'll wheel this out at court. They're like, see, it was premeditated. Although or, I, I will say that uh, not that I would ever do it or am planning to do it or am currently like, you know, trying to find this Eric Marsden record. Uh, but Bank robbery, cool and good. Yeah, as a supervillain, I can endorse bank robbery, just so long as if you do a bank robbery and get caught, you don't tell anyone I said that. Right. This is a parody. (laughs) Uh, Now, while I'm running down the street carrying giant burlap sacks with big dollar signs painted on the side, uh, my notes here say Pete was playing with himself. Tell us about that. Okay, yeah, we uh, we cut to the warehouse, and uh, we see Artie getting, like, a printout from the computer or whatever, and uh, he's like, oh, third one or whatever. And we cut to Pete, who is playing a game of ping pong against a mirror, and uh, the mirror Pete is uh, clearly winning, and he's looking a little cocky about it. Mirror Pete, or Meat, is kind of an asshole. It, but it seems like it, yeah. I, I guess, like, if you did look into, I believe it was Lewis Carroll's Looking Glass, that's what would happen. Right. Yeah, that, uh... I knew that, uh... 
object was named, even though I don't think they name it in this episode. Like there's like we zoom past like a, a tag that has that written on it. Right. So uh, yeah, Pete returns and is uh, sweating on Artie's floor in the office, and Artie is not particularly happy about that. I wouldn't want cops sweat on my floor. Right. And he and Micah are informed that they're going to Chicago. Ah, uh, Chicago. The greatest city in the world. Is that what people from Chicago sound like? I get my accents mixed up. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I can't do a Chicago, though. I get they them mixed that... up with box with Boston in my head. and like I catch myself wanting to say, like, pack the can, have it, yad, but I know that's not the right city. Right. Boston, notable for having uh, their famous Red Hots, uh, that awful-tasting uh, liqueur that they make, and the big mirror bean thing. Oh, yeah. We do not see the bean in this episode, which, you know, it seems fucking weird enough to be in an episode of this. Right. Although that might be uh, more recent than we think it is. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like it's not extremely old, at least. It might even be newer than the uh, episode that we're talking about. Well, according to Wikipedia, it's called The Cloud Gate. And it opened in 2006. So it would have been three years old when this episode aired, I believe. Okay. So it definitely was there. It was very new at the time. Yeah, it was a brand spanking new bean. Right. Yeah, uh, Pete and Micah go ahead and uh, roll out to Chicago, and that leaves Lena and uh, Artie in the warehouse office area, and Artie discovers that they're being hacked. <gasps> Gasp! And this time, instead of uh, having anything human-readable on the screen, it's just, uh, like, like, if you tried to open a uh, file that was bytecode or something, as if it were Unicode, so you get a bunch of, uh, like, accented characters and stuff, yeah, that's just happening everywhere. Yeah, because at first it wasn't working. He had to beat it up. Right. And she was like, oh, I thought, you know, I thought corporal punishment didn't work on computers. And Right, you know, but percussive called... maintenance is important. Uh <laughs> I did the same thing I wrote down. It's called percussive maintenance. Right. And then uh, threatening the monitors is also apparently quite important. Oh, I can see that. Because once he threatens them, they uh, straighten right up. <laughs> but uh, then they're reading this gibberish on screen. Interestingly, the last time we were hacking, it wasn't gibberish. And they didn't seem to be reading any of it. But this time, it is gibberish, and they're able to work out uh, that the mysterious hacker is uh, very good. Mm -hmm. they're, bounce they're behind seven proxies. Good luck with that. Right. The, uh, the Zaytek subsonic security system is impenetrable. And then it gets penetra penetrated like a few minutes later, or right after that. Right, but as soon as Artie starts the trace, uh, the uh, hacker disappears like a ghost. A ghost in the machine, if you will. Right. And then, uh, oh yeah, uh, Micah was actually 
standing outside trying to make a phone call while the hacking happened. Oh, she got hit with a football. Right. Pete tried to uh, warn her before she got hit with a football comically. Which, it's interesting. Apparently, you throw that football and it comes back at, like, a specific time because Pete set a uh, alarm on his phone because he planned to catch the football after he threw it. Yeah, like it... Like, it's on a timer or something. Right. Or it just, uh... It takes a while to come around, as Artie said. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it, uh... If it takes some sort of circular path, or if it's supposed to orbit the Earth. Because it, it comes back... Like, you throw it kind of away from the warehouse's front door, and it, you know, flies back towards the front door. So it's... And was it bouncing off of something? Right, like, I kind of imagine that it flies in a sort of uh, circle based on the Coriolis effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and in, in the but southern hemisphere, the magic footballs uh, go the other direction. It's probably not that well understood. Since, uh, well, down it there it's a different kind of football. Out of eyesight which, uh, of the warehouse, it's pr- pretty hard to continue studying. Yeah. Plus, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, it's a different kind of football. So, you know, it makes the science way harder. Or do they use a rugby ball? Right, absolutely. So we, uh, we travel to Chicago, where they're meeting a Bonnie Belsky, who uh, I noted here that uh, this show is really into its uh, female cop representation. More clap emoji, female clap emoji, cops clap emoji. Okay, but like, why do they play the, oh yeah, like horny music when she shows up? Oh yeah, yeah, they really lean into that. Like, I'm a lesbian. I like women in suits. I like redheads, but she doesn't do anything for me. And there's no accounting for taste, but it's like, maybe it's because she's a cop, I don't know. It doesn't help that Pete can't stop being horny for one second. Right, yeah. I mean, it didn't really matter who they cast, because uh, it just makes sense for Pete to be horny for no matter what. Yeah. But, uh, the... Yeah, the actress they cast, I mean, it's clear that she's supposed to be smoking. Like, that's... I can tell that that's the sort of casting they did for her, and the way they shot her. Yeah, like, she's pretty. Like, she's... She's attractive, but, but like she's yeah, not then, like oh course. yeah, attractive. At least not to me. It it feels weirdly out of place. Right. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> she's not Tex Avery. Uh, eyes popping out of your head, attractive. Yeah. No, she's not like. But cartoon wolf eyes bulging out of the head, hitting yourself over the head with a wrench, attractive. Tongue rolling out for her to walk on. And, like, the music would have made sense if, like, this episode was from Pete's... Like, the show was told from Pete's perspective, but it isn't. We get this kind of third-person, semi-omniscient perspective that makes me think that, like, you know, the people... You know, the world, the story wants us to think, like, oh, yeah, this lady is... You know, oh, yeah. Right. Sci-fi doesn't want to confuse their viewer. (laughs) Yeah. It wouldn't be an episode of Warehouse 13 if we didn't get some sort of jurisdictional pissing match. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Bonnie is extremely upset and looked into uh, Pete and Micah before they turned up. So uh, Bonnie has looked into who these people are coming in and uh, trying to swoop in on her case. And she's not uh, she's not particularly happy that the Secret Service has showed up. Yeah, they're trying to take her bank robbery. Right. So uh, they're not particularly uh, cooperative, but that's eventually smoothed over by uh, Micah getting in touch with uh, Dickinson. Yeah, uh, her old boss, Dickinson. Mm-hmm. In the meanwhile, Micah ends up having to take a call uh, for the second time when she was outside of the warehouse. Uh, she was also taking a call with her family. She's got uh, family stuff going on. Yeah, her dad's having a retirement party that maybe is not actually a retirement party. Right, yeah. She says he'll never retire from that bookstore. And since he owns the bookstore, you don't really retire from that. But uh, we'll see. Uh, and Pete uh, walks out and is talking to her. And she she tells him that... Uh, you know, it's none of his business. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I got it. But uh, if my dad were still alive, I'd go see him. Fuck off, Pete. Yeah, no one with you, their parents Pete. says that. That's extremely rude. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, Pete, not everyone has, like, a good relationship with their parents. Right. And, like, something, especially if, you know, you lost a parent in adolescence, like, you learn to not just, like, make people uncomfortable, like, go out of your way to do that to them. Yeah, like, and... what's with this, what's with the fucking unsolicited dead dad guilt trip, Pete? Right, yeah, just don't do that to people. Yeah, like, it's, they brush it off in the show, but, like, if someone pulled that on me, I'd be, like, I think I'd be stunned. I would feel really awkward immediately. Right, I have, a, uh, I have really strong opinions on it, because, like, I would never, ever do that to someone. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, you just sort of learn that, because, uh, honestly, the most annoying thing about having, you know, parental, uh, like, a parental death in your childhood is that people don't know how to uh, react to it, and they're just really uncomfortable. And, like, mm-hmm. you just want to get past it. So that's why you don't do things like that. <laughs> What the hell, Pete? But then we cut to uh, Artie, who is reverse hacking the hacker, but he's doing it entirely uh, on a pegboard with string. So he uh, does some work and discovers that the whole time it was Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> I imagine if you work in Warehouse 13, you wind up making a lot of those like red yarn conspiracy theory boards. Right. Apparently, when you're uh, bouncing back through seven proxies, you need to uh, make a uh, yarn line to work out where it went. <laughs> so, uh, but he ultimately finds that it was uh, Dickinson's computer. <gasps> Not Dickinson. It's that guy we. Really. It's that guy we, I guess, are supposed to like. I mean, it's that guy we're supposed to know because he's uh, just the generic boss guy. Yeah. 
Yeah, like you look at him and you know, oh yeah, that's Pete and Mika's ex-boss. And then uh, after Dickinson had pulled some strings for Mika, which interestingly, okay, no, it wouldn't have happened at exactly the same time that he was getting hacked because they had to travel to Chicago. So Mika and Pete uh, got Dickinson to pull some strings and get Bonnie to cooperate with them. Pete referred to it as a spanking from her superiors. Like, which, I mean, I guess is fitting for Pete's character. Yeah, see, a spanking isn't a punishment if you want to be spanked. Right. (laughs) They got access to some files, which Pete immediately slices up into dioramas. Yeah, like, what the fuck, Pete? Like, the first time I watched this episode, I thought, like, Oh, maybe he's just cutting up some, like, you know, regular old manila folders, but it's implied at least twice that he cut up the actual case files. You're not a very good cop, are you, Pete? Yeah, these people put together files, and he's, like, just making stick figure paper stand-ups and, like, slicing up the uh, crime scene photographs to make his little dioramas. Yeah, like... The first time I watched, like, oh, like, there's no way he he cut up the the like actual case files, but no, it's implied at least twice in this episode that that is exactly what he did. Right. Yeah, and he's talking with uh, Bonnie about the uh, the fact that everyone seems to have forgotten what happened when they got robbed, and uh, Bonnie is like. Bonnie's like, yeah, that uh, doesn't really... Or, tell me something I don't know. And so he uh, drops his knowledge that Mary, Queen of Scots, croquet mallet was made of uh, narwhal horn. and She it, never uh, lost a match. Yep, she never lost a match. And uh, for some reason, Bonnie takes this as, oh, you know what's going on? <laughs> Which seems like a really... Uh, like, that's quite a stretch. Honestly. Yeah, like, because, like, not too long after this, like, Pete, uh, like, mentions he, like, doesn't know what the, about Edison wax cylinders or whatever. Right. So it's, like, Pete, you, you know this, this thing about the narwhal horn, but you don't know this, I don't know, what strikes me as somewhat more basic knowledge. Right, yeah, it's, uh. It's not something you need to know, but it's a really basic piece of trivia that the wax cylinder was one of our early examples of recording. Yeah, especially since, like, you know, it seems like the sort of thing that would come up if you work for, like, the dead people's spooky shithouse. Right. I, I'm pretty sure there's whole hallways devoted to Edison. Yeah. Hell, you, you rode in his car, Pete, I think. Right. So they, uh... Oh, yeah. Uh, they talked to Artie about the theory that it might be uh, something sound-based, and Artie is going on various tangents about uh, light-based memory loss devices and a pollen that caused uh, someone to be a sexually rapacious sleepwalker. Sound like some good fucking bees. And good fucking bees. Yeah. But then they, uh, they're combing through the, uh, the security camera footage and spot the guy using his cell phone during the bank robbery. And incredibly, 
RD, like it's nothing, just sort of pulls the uh, the call audio. Like, yeah. this seems a little bit more further reaching than, like, you would even expect in a sci-fi version of the Secret Service. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, they have this conversation about how, like, oh, you know, there's no sound on the recording, so we can't, because federal wiretap laws, so we don't overhear... But then he just like, doot, 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 okay, I got the, the voicemail or whatever he left. Done. Right. Like, it almost seems like they're setting up, oh yeah, no sound on the recording because they want there to be something that, you know, they have to solve. <laughs> but no, they just immediately solve it afterward. Yeah, and then in the very next scene, they like, you know, have the recording and they use it on that lady. Right, yeah, so they get Laura to uh, interview with them. And they play her the audio of the call. How do you remember she... everyone's name like this? Do you write them down, or are you just good at that? Uh, I write them down. So, the... So, Laura's eyes dilate when she starts to hear the music. And she starts uh, crying tears of joy. We filmed this lady before and after we told her she was beautiful. Right. Artie describes it as possibly a limbic trigger, and Pete points out helpfully that his limbic was not triggered. Uh, I hate it when something triggers my limbic, I can tell you that right now. Right. And he also, uh, Artie's trying to work out the origin of this sound, and Pete uh, points out that it also sounds like his dad's favorite song. Center of My Soul by the Bricktowns. It's important to note that uh, the Bricktowns do not exist. Uh, oh, good. I just looked that up. Yeah, Eric Marsden, uh, not a real musician. And it's very convenient that there is a wiki at fakebands.com that details that. <laughs> So if you need to look up some fake bands, they got you covered. Shouts out to fakebands.com. <laughs> or as they call themselves, the Rocklopedia Fake Bandica. Right. So they go hunt down this Eric Marsden guy. It's especially interesting because he's living in Chicago at the time. Imagine. And they meet uh, his assistant, uh, Vicky. Yeah who they uh, ask if it's possible that he was, you know, out robbing banks. And he's like, no, he doesn't really leave the house. He's uh, pretty severely afflicted from various uh, mental issues, it seems like. I don't think yeah. they really want to hammer down one particular direction. Yeah, just... Getting screwed over by the record company fucked him up. Seems to be about the long and short of it. Right, yeah, he's uh, he's dying of heartbreak, really, yeah. <laughs> over yeah. the loss of his music. And okay. he has about a month to live. Oh, fuck. I'm, I'm looking at the, the fakebands.com, like, description of Eric Marsden. And, you know, there are, like, there are exactly four sentences on this this website about him. Uh, here, 
one of them is a paragraph on its own that just says no longer popular period. <laughs> right, yeah, the uh the editors at fakebands.com they really go above and beyond, but they uh they do kind of err towards terseness. Yeah. They don't want you to spend too much time trying to read up. Uh they want to just get right to the point with you. Yeah, like I've been clicking the random page button a little bit. And like their their page on old mechs who is a who shows up in like two panels of some comic book from 1950. <laughs> and old mechs gets like more more description than Eric Marsden does. I'm definitely going to have to learn more about old mechs. <laughs> Join us next week on Old Hex, our Old Mechs Watch and Talk About podcast. We'll talk about the whole two frames that it uh, appears in a uh, comic. So, uh, the caregiver uh, says that it's fine if they go talk to Eric, uh, but Micah should do all of the talking because he has a has timber that will make uh, Eric angry. So Micah starts talking to him, and he mentions that she has a uh, beautiful voice. And she uh, retorts with, uh, uh, someone once told me I have the voice of a bard. Take the compliment, Mika, jeez. Right. And uh, Pete starts just playing a couple notes on the piano. Apparently, uh, based on the music that he heard when he was uh, interviewing uh, Laura, he just sort of transposed that into uh, piano notes, which is like, I'm pretty sure you'd have to have perfect pitch to do that. And like, it's said that he's very good at the piano because... Uh, because he had a crush on his piano teacher. But it seems a little more than very good to me. Now, his, it's possible that, like, Pete's just replicating the tune that he heard, which was, you know, enough to make Marsden remember. Right, yeah, maybe he was just close enough. Yeah. But Marsden perks up and asks if they heard it. Have you heard everything? I mean, I certainly haven't heard everything, but I've heard nearly everything. Actually, I'm pretty sure there's a uh, button to make uh, Audacity play everything. Oh, well, that's handy. Yeah, pink noise. It's great. All the sounds at once. So, so they get a name... For the guy who stole all of his music, who is now suspect number one, because we think that somewhere in Marsden's recordings, there is a track that will cause people to forget what's going on and feel a deep sense of joy. Hmm. Weird how that works. Right. Micah goes over her uh, her issues with her dad, with Pete, once again. 
it's weird. They just sort of like trot this out uh, moment to moment. Like yeah. they'll touch on it once and then move on and then come back to it and then move on and then come back to it again. Yeah, like it's it's really weird how like one of them will just like decide to open this wound and the other one may or may not stick a finger in it. Right. Like Mika said, you know, the voice like a barmaid thing was, you know, presumably something her dad told her. And Pete mentions that, but like, Pete, why would you say that? Right, yeah. You already know. You don't have to like be all smug about how you connected the dots. Right. The vibe that you got. Yeah. One of those dad vibes. Speaking which, of, we go it, to the uh, we go to the recording. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a recording studio. It's the record uh, exec's rec- office. Right. And Pete and Micah are doing a sort of uh, back and forth on uh, being observant, which is Micah's thing. Pete's not supposed to do that. Pete's supposed to get vibes. But yeah, Pete's not supposed to look at things. He's just supposed to, you know, get his spider sense tingled by something. Right. Yeah, but uh, they both are, you know, articulating clear reasons why there's uh, clearly not as much money as this guy wants to project there is. Which, in the music business, obviously, you don't want to look like an exec who's broke. You want to look like one of those fancy executives. Right, no one wants to sign with you if it doesn't look like you've got the money. Mm-hmm. So uh, they get to take a look at Marsden's section of master recordings in yeah. his uh, locked storage room. Yeah. Oh, which, uh... which Pete, uh, due to his inability to not touch things, ends up dropping one of these master records. And as we all know, record executives are the real criminals. Right, yeah. I mean, that's very clearly established. They drove yeah. this uh, Eric Marsden to uh, insanity just by stealing all of his music. And uh, the exec says, oh yeah, Marsden doesn't sell anymore. Uh, but there is a buyer looking at to buy the whole collection. Some anonymous buyer. Probably some collector in Japan. They love the bubblegum. But Marsden didn't make bubblegum pop. It seemed like he made more like, you know, weird jazzy stuff. So that's his uh, later career. Like uh, Pete said that he went to the Blue Note with his dad to see uh, Marsden live. And this Mm -hmm. was when he had moved on to the more experimental jazz stuff. Mm-hmm. When he was with the Bricktones, I think it was largely bubblegum pop. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he transitioned when he was trying to find this sound, this particular sound that would show people some particular uh, thing that he sure. was chasing. But the Blue and... Note is a jazz club. Right. Yeah, this was in his jazz phase. Hmm. And uh, the record exec happened to let us know that a big part of the reason he chased this uh, new sound was Jed Thistle, his sound engineer, Mm. who is now our uh, next suspect, even though all of our uh, all of the music is 
uh, locked in this guy's facility. They mentioned Jed, uh, Jed Fissel, who's a taxi driver, who might have something that didn't end up locked up in uh, this uh, small record collection warehouse. Hmm. This other warehouse. Not a warehouse 13, just a regular one. Right, yeah. Almost nothing is all that interesting in this warehouse. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than master samples, those are pretty cool. But they're certainly not uh, something that lets you rob banks except one of them. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could, like, rob a bank with, like, a, I know, a length of tape or a, you know, a particularly sharp vinyl shard or whatever, but I don't think you would get very far. Right, and it wouldn't be particularly better than... It wouldn't be particularly better than, uh, you know, any other object that you can get just off the street. Yeah, like, you're not going to get very far. Like, the people protecting the banks have guns. Right, usually, yeah. So, uh, he's been off-grid for six months, which, you know, that is a pretty... uh, striking thing. He was in a different city uh, and hasn't been seen anywhere at all for the past six months. Despite the fact that I think he was actively a cab driver in uh, Chicago. Yeah, like the well, record exec guy said something like, last I heard he was a cab driver, but that was years ago or something like that. Right, but I don't think he like wasn't working. Yeah, who knows. Like, you know, you can be a cab driver and relatively off the grid, I assume, especially back in Hot 9 or whenever this was. Right. And Pete gets a call from our uh, our friend Bonnie. She's narrowed it down to two possible banks, and they're going to go stake out one of them based on uh, traffic patterns. It seemed that all of the banks that they hit were in the were during rush hour in some of the worst traffic areas in the city. But they took a route that was clear. Something that uh, you would have to know the city extremely well for. Like you know, a cab, like a cab driver. driver. And so Pete wants to go uh, play footsie with FBI lady. Yeah. And Micah apparent, eventually relents and decides, oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> But Which... then Micah uh, hears a uh, like serving tray fall on the ground and realizes the reason they're hitting particular banks is the acoustics, <gasps> like all of the marble and high ceilings allows for uh, the recording to reverberate. Oh. So, so naturally, Pete, uh, or so naturally... Micah can just call Artie and she'll and he'll let her know exactly which banks have the necessary acoustic profile for this to work. Yeah, like it, of course you could just pull that up. Like, yeah, let me, you know, select acoustic profiles of Chicago banks, order by soundliness. Right. I mean, the warehouse computer seems pretty fancy, so like it yeah. it doesn't seem like that big a task for for it. However, Artie isn't at the warehouse. Artie is in D.C. 
and he's in Dickinson's office hacking his computer. Which the way he hacked it was uh to jab this little uh like rolling number uh like combination lock number thing into a USB port that was on the side of the uh keyboard of his computer, which is a thing I think should come back. There are so few keyboards with USB ports, and we need more of them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it might make weird government guys make it slightly easier to jack into your computer, but think of the convenience for you when you're not getting hacked. Yeah, I have to reach all the way over to uh, my little uh, small form factor PC to jab things into it. What, What if it was just at my keyboard? Yeah, and like, you know, what if I'm running out of slots, huh? Ever think about that? Keyboardists? Keyboardists? Right. Yeah, and so, uh, as Artie's hacking into the, uh, Secret Service computer, uh, of Dickinson, Dickinson walks in, and Artie snaps a photo of him with a old-timey camera, and freezes him in place. Pretty spooky. Yeah, he actually becomes a two-dimensional, like, stand-up thing. Yeah, black and white and everything. And so he keeps going about his business. And then, uh, I think he has to, like, intentionally unfreeze him. And he does so, so that, uh, he can have a conversation with Dickinson. But Uh, then needs to, uh, help Micah out with her thing. Artie does describe what he did with the camera as a Kodak moment, which is, a uh, sure is not a reference that has aged very well. I mean, I don't know. Kodak's not going anywhere. They are still the only people who make a 35mm movie projection film. See, I thought they, they like, declared bankruptcy a while ago, and they reorganized, and they tried selling Bitcoin mining boxes for a while for some reason. I did not hear about that. Yeah. I did. So, I, uh, I used to work in a movie theater, so I have a certain amount of familiarity with uh, film projection. And in, like, 2012, no one was making film anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's not a problem because they just, like, wash the pictures off of film and put new pictures on them. Huh. Which, neat, I guess. Yeah, like, they just figured they had all of the film they could ever need because less uh, less and less theaters are using film projection. Mm-hmm. And uh, the film generally comes back in pretty decent shape, so it can be reused. About as many times as you'd like. That makes sense. So I I did look it up, and the Kodak Cash Miner, cash spelled with a K, was okay. a Bitcoin mining computer that was displayed as Kodak's booth at CES 2018. Da 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 da. The initiative was by a company who had licensed the Kodak name. The initiative was not endorsed by the actual Kodak company. Oh, beautiful! So they just sold someone the. Uh right to use their name for that yeah who had so, uh, by a company that had previously licensed the kodak name for kodak branded led lighting which i mean that sort of makes sense if you're selling some sort of like color neutral lighting or whatever yeah like yeah that 
that as a marketing ploy makes sense. Yeah. And so, blah, 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 you would spend like three and a half grand to rent this thing that would live at Kodak's offices in New York, and then they would send you the bitcoins from it. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Widely criticized, branded a scam, promised impossible payouts. Uh, and then they got shut down by the SEC. It sounds like they were about two years too late. Like, you could have totally pulled that off in 2016. Yeah, exactly. The Kodak and, uh, Power website had never been finished, with <laughs> Thorm Ipsum placeholder text still present on the terms and conditions and privacy policy pages. Beautiful. And Wikipedia wants you to know that this is not to be confused with the unrelated cryptocurrency, Kodak Coin, which is a photographer-oriented blockchain that is planned for payments for licensing photographs. Okay. I Wait. mean... There was a time where if you proposed some sort of blockchain project, you could expect to make a boatload of money just for your ICO for uh, no reason whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Like when they did this, Kodak stock price tripled in two days. Briefly, like when that blockchain coffee company happened, I was considering changing my middle name to blockchain. <laughs> like, but, you know, spelled weird, like blockchain. But right. I'm going with danger. I like that better. It's timeless. Okay. Yeah, and more recently, Kodak made the news uh, because their stocks just mysteriously started trading at uh, a, a few a thousand times the volume that they typically trade at uh, huh. hours before it was revealed that they were getting a massive government loan to start producing pharmaceuticals in their uh, chemical facilities. Huh. So just like blatant insider trading. Dad, what the hell? The uh, chemicals that they were making in their facilities uh, turns out to be hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> because of course it is. Oh yeah, that anti-malaria drug that does jack shit. For COVID-19. Right. Yeah, so if you need some sort of uh, ridiculous grip that is going to be signed into law by executive order, uh, I'm surprised how long it took for it to happen, because it was like uh, probably a month and a half after Trump started talking up hydroxychloroquine. But yeah, people just walked away with, uh, like, the stock shot up over a thousand percent so all of these insider traders just walked away with probably uh millions to hundreds of millions of dollars god the fuck is up with this country yeah the entire uh the entire stock market uh most of the time if you look close enough it's just bad yeah like like no matter where you look look like at best you're gambling at worst, you're doing this. Right. And computers have been shown, like index funds just do better than day yeah. traders, except when day traders uh, are trading on insider information. Yeah. It's the only time it ever works. Anyways, welcome. 
to NASDAQ 69. Our... The uh, S&P 69. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, where were we? I have... I'll admit the secretary's cute, and uh, they catch the guy, and Pete says something like, touch your boobies? Which is just, what the hell, Pete? Okay, that's jumping ahead a little. Uh, Artie does, after he's unfrozen uh, Dickinson, Mm -hmm. uh, he's saying, hey, why'd you hack me? Like, why'd you hack into the warehouse? And Dickinson's like, I didn't hack you. You got punked. Which is a really weird thing for, like, Mr. Button-Down FBI president guy, Secret Service president guy to say. Right, and he has entirely too much understanding of how hacking works Yeah, in this uh, universe where, you know, hacking works however they feel like it works. So I'm, I'm not up on the slang, but according to a quick search, the TV show Punked had been off the air for two years when this was made. So there's no way that, like, there's no way that, like, he's even saying something timely, which I guess is appropriate, given he's, like, you know, some supposedly out-of-touch white dude. Right. But how long was it until they rebooted Punk? Punk. Well, that's the thing, is I see episodes in 2012 and not 7. So, it had been off the air for two years at this point, though that doesn't mean it wasn't, like, still a cultural touchstone, I suppose. Right, and I believe that there was a reboot. There was a reboot in 2012. Uh, I believe there was one in 2017, and they're doing one again that's like about to start. Someone needs to stop these people. You can just call your show something else. You could just right. call it Kerpr- Well, I'd say Kerpranked, but that was a Gravity Falls joke. You can call it like <laughs> Bamboozled or whatever. Right, please go, stop MTV. remaking Punk. If you're out there listening, whatever you do, please stop remaking Punk. MTV, if you're listening, knock it off. I know what you're thinking. Knock it off. Just stop. You can hire me and I'll tell you how to do it right. But until then, knock it off. So uh, Micah runs off to try and stop a bank robbery because Artie has informed her of the two banks that it could possibly be. and. So she heads to the one, and uh, she thought to grab some earplugs beforehand. So Smart. when they start blasting some uh, some of Eric Marsden's dopest beats, uh, she's just fine. Dropping Eric Marsden's bass. Right. And she gets into an altercation with uh, with one of the bank robbers. And there's a fight, and she... Proves to be less capable as a fighter when it doesn't serve the uh, narrative purpose very well. Yeah, she was a she was a pretty good fighter in the first episode, but maybe it's because she took her shoes off beforehand. Then that might be it. Maybe uh, her power comes from earthing. <laughs> she has to be in tune with the earth by uh, walking barefoot in order yeah. to fight. Yeah. Or was it that, like, you know, earplugs aren't perfect. Was it that she was, like, 
loopy enough on the sound that it made her bad at fighting. I mean, it did show that the sound was affecting her through the earplugs. She was just uh, less affected and still had some, you know, pretty good function. So, yeah, maybe she was just uh, impacted by the music. Mm -hmm. But she gets smacked in the face with a uh, briefcase and the baddies get away, with the exception of Jed Fissel. He, uh, He gets left behind. Poor Jed. Jeb. So, uh, the FBI has him in custody, and they're entering the FBI building. And Pete's looking around and getting a vibe, and noticing just how big and ornate and marble the FBI building is in Chicago. And they waltz right in and snatch Jeb, or Jed, uh, right back using the uh, speakers. Not before Micah tries to grab one of the people snatching Jed. Jeb? Jed? It's Jed. <laughs> uh, but is unsuccessful due to the uh, fact that she's being somewhat affected by the music. Music does affect people in unexpected ways. It moves us all. Yeah. Well, yeah, what, what's the... What's the saying? You can't touch music, but music can touch you. Sure. Sounds, uh, sounds like something people would say. Af- in the aftermath, uh, Pete is all loopy on, uh, on, music uh, sauce. Lovey brain chemicals, yeah, yeah. Because that's apparently what happens. And so he's, uh, leaning on Micah and telling her she smells, her perfume smells nice. And she's like, I'm not wearing perfume. And he discovers... uh, He has a brain blast. Right. Yeah, he grabs her by the hand and smells her hand. And it's the perfume that the receptionist at the record exec's office was wearing. That he was ogling. Right, yeah. She was very very obviously spraying it... uh, while she was on the phone, while they were waiting in the lobby, and he was uh, doing flirty uh, gestures while she was on the phone. Like, I'll admit the secretary's cute at least. She's, she looks better to me than the cop. Right. So, now they know that she's involved, and they storm on off to uh, to Eric Marsden's apartment? Oh no! Uh, Micah had slipped her cell phone into uh, Jed's pocket as he was getting snatched, and she just had already uh, trace it, and he traces it to Eric Marston's place. Oh, and at some I, when they arrest the when they arrested Jeb Jed Jeb for the first time, that's when Micah says something like, "Yeah, you know, one of them was a woman." Right, yeah, because she felt her. Yeah, and Pete says that really weird thing he says. Right, yeah. It, it's weird because it's like a stretch of the character for, like, even Pete. Yeah, like... Like, it doesn't feel like a very Pete line. Yeah, like... Like, Pete's not usually, like, this horny and immature... I mean, he's usually pretty horny and immature, but yeah, yeah, not 
not like so overt about it. Yeah. He's a little smoother while being horny and immature. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think a, a later Pete would have simply like pantomimed touching breast or something like that, but no. Right. So they managed to get to uh, Marsden's apartment and they're having a uh, birthday party, I think. But the gist is that Marsden is in much better shape because they had purchased his music back and this just magically cured him of everything except the cancer that was going to kill him in a month. Maybe they just haven't found the song that cures cancer yet. Right, yeah, it's probably right there in the catalog. Yeah. And so the daughter, uh, who turned out to also be the secretary, uh, her name's Stephanie Good. Uh, it turns out she only got that job to get the access to be able to rob the banks uh, in order to buy this music back from her employer because she just couldn't bear to not see her dad in his dying days. So, like, why didn't they just steal the music? It seems like it would be a lot easier to rob a a, a music label that has fallen on hard times than it would be to rob a bank. Right. I mean, if uh, if Pete and Micah had never shown up asking about Eric Marsden, how long do you think it would take for uh, the record exec to even notice it was missing? He's not even selling these. Yeah, like, it's... Like, the entire episode, I thought, like, you know, the the boss said, I have the only key or whatever. I thought it was setting us up for, like, oh, someone's going to steal the records. No, they just, they buy them with, I don't know how much he was asking, but they needed to rob four banks. Right? Right. You'd imagine they got at least $5,000 per bank. It would be hard to imagine them going through all of that for any less. Yeah, and twenty thousand dollars is quite a lot for a music library that you have no intention of selling. Yeah, that like nobody wants. That is basically worthless to you. And I understand there's a there's a corporate greed angle, but like, like you said, if they had simply like walked off with the records, I highly doubt that anyone would have noticed. Yeah, because they were because, the buyer. Yeah, and masters, you know, you don't pull them out for any old reason. Like, you only pull them out for uh, very particular cases, because every time you play a vinyl record, it dulls the the actual grooves, and so it damages the sound quality. So So you would not pull it out unless you were doing a remaster, which is not something he ever planned on doing with this music. Yeah, he said, you know, Marsden doesn't sell anymore or whatever. But it's also... Why were they... Why were they master records? You Masters are stored on tape. I mean, uh, ta- magnetic tape is not good for long-term storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, my copy of Lou Vega's A Little Bit of Mambo at the uh, early uh, portion of the record. Uh, it has volume that dips and writes and rises hmm. because it sat on a shelf in the same position too long. Hmm. And the earth's magnetic poles, uh, kind of 
shifted the magnetism on the tape. That makes sense. Plus, yeah. It depends on, was well, it like a cassette tape or like a nice fancy like quarter inch master tape? It was a cassette tape, but I mean, magnetic tape's magnetic tape. I'm sure you can store it in a place that is, uh, you know, magnetically isolated. Yeah, because but... uh, if you're a company like IBM or whatever, who has terabytes of information they need to store forever, basically, they put it on magnetic tape and stick that in cold storage. Right, but yeah, and it's probably uh, better taken care case. of. It's climate controlled, humidity controlled, etc., etc., instead of sitting on a shelf like like this stuff was. Right, yeah, it's extremely valuable, and like you can't necessarily trust master tapes to be like that. Mm-hmm. And as far as I understand it, uh, master records are at least as good as master tapes for what you're uh, doing with them. And they have to be produced if you're ever going to press vinyl. Yeah. Because there's a cutting machine that cuts the first one, and then you make mold like a mold. the inverse, and then you press the vinyl for the uh, individual records. Yeah, if you're going from to that mold. Yeah, if you're going to press a record, you have to have something to stamp it out with. Right. Did you know there that these days there is one company that makes the uh, master cutting machine? Huh. They're based in Germany, and they will sell you one for like six grand or whatever, which isn't that much for you know a extremely specific piece of professional gear. Yeah. The more difficult part is they won't sell it to you unless you'll do their month long course on how to use it. That makes sense. Yeah, so you have to fly to Germany and sit through this course before they'll even sell it to you. I guess that makes sense. You wouldn't want anyone I mean, making shitty records. Right. You And you wouldn't want to have to try and do phone support on one of these things. Oh, no. Like, it's a, it's a very strange sort of uh, equipment since it's a... Uh, a transducer that cuts grooves. And I'm sure it's very high quality, like very fine uh, detail. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I know about that because uh, the musician Kid Koala was looking into buying one once. <laughs> that does explain how there, like, there's a number of companies who will, like, make vinyl for you. Right. It makes sense you can still get the machines. Right, but there's only one company that does yeah. it these days. There used to be more games than now. But, like, honestly, these machines, I don't think, break down very often. No. So, aside from maybe a couple replacement parts, which you can probably get made, uh, they probably last as long as you'd like them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not like uh, it's not like Laserdisc machines where they, uh, the laser runs out of lifetime. It's, right. You just, you know, it's a cutting tool. Right, and I'm sure you can go to a machinist and hand them the cutting implement, and they can make you another. Mm-hmm. So they talk amongst one another, and with uh, Vicky, the caregiver, and she was once backing vocals on Marston's records, mm-hmm. and they're like, "We got to take this record," and they decide that they're not going to report them for the numerous bank robberies 
because that's none of their business. They're just after the record. You did kind of, like, tell the FBI about, like, at least one of the people here, maybe two. Right. Yeah, we're pretty sure that at some point they're going to get caught, but it it depends. Maybe they don't. And Pete really wanted to uh, give them that chance. Yeah. Like, they did the right thing by not telling the FBI. It does not undo the information they already gave the FBI, but yeah, they probably right. did about as good a thing as they could do. Yeah, and it's not like they can cover for them anymore. Yeah. Like, other than just Teslaing the FBI agents and seeing if they forget everything they need to know. Ah, <laughs> uh, the ship has probably sailed on that one. Right. So, at the end of my notes, I have something about... Oh, yeah. Artie, uh, at the end of the episode, it cuts back to Artie at uh, Dickinson's office still. And he has taken the side panel off of the computer and is uh, presumably just breaking it. Yeah, fucking around in there, like, wiring stuff into there. There's sparks flying around, and Dickinson's like, you're gonna put that back together, right? Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Right. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, if I were Dickinson and I had let Artie have all of this access, I'd go to uh, the you know, Secret Service IT department and be like, uh, just light this computer on fire. Yeah, like... Just make it go away. Yeah, like, that's what they do, like, in a... If you're, yeah, like... Yeah, this thing needs to be air-gapped forever. Oh, yeah, like, if you're, like, when they retire a computer that has, like, launch codes or secret shit on it, they just throw the hard drive, like, in a furnace or destroy it with thermite. Right. Yeah, and, like, if you've let Artie muck about as much as you have, there is no reason for you to ever consider that computer secure again. Yeah, like, it probably happens all the time in the Secret Service. Like, okay, you know, destroy this, com- destroy this computer. I don't... It's, it's useless to me now. Like... Right. And, yeah. like, even if Artie hadn't done it, it's already a known attack vector for the warehouse. Yeah. Like, like someone it, did, in fact, hack into your computer, Dickie. Right. It's compromised. Like, uh, yeah. you probably don't even want to put it back together. Yeah. But Artie gets zapped and goes into some sort of uh, mysterious dream sequence thing where I don't think they reveal much of anything. No. But they reveal that Artie knows who it might be. Yeah. He knows more than we do right now. Right. And then that's it, right? They just roll credits after that? I think so. Like, that's about all we get. It's like a false cliffhanger. Like, it's written like it's a cliffhanger, but it doesn't feel like one. Yeah, especially since... It doesn't build any attention. Yeah, especially since there's... We won't figure out who this is until episode four. Right. And even then, it won't even be who, uh... Who it is. Hmm. I believe that uh, the person Artie thinks it is in that particular instance is not the person it turns out to be. Yeah, something like that. But that's a story for another day. Yeah. Like, because, like, at, at work we have these secure admin workstations, and they have to be made in a special factory. They cost a lot of money. They, like, 
if you drop one or like shake it around too much, that like voids the security of it. Hmm. Like they're like these super locked down machines, and if I were the director of the FBI or of the Secret Service or whatever, I would assume I would have something like that involved. I mean, yeah, and even if not, you still don't like. You still have the basic level of OPSEC where you're like, well, this is a known compromised computer. Yeah, it like can't I, be used anymore. Yeah, like there's, yeah, like not only was like not only did someone hack through me on the way to someone else, I let this I let this guy have physical access to the machine for as long as he wanted. Right, hardware access, yeah. like. The most plausible thing you could do with the uh, panel off there is jam something in an internal USB header or something, mm-hmm. something that's not plugged into the ex- the outside of the case. And, like, that could be a keylogger or whatever. There's mm-hmm. tons of things you can do over USB. Or, you know, there's yeah. tons of other ports on a uh, typical motherboard as well. Yeah. Now, clearly, that wasn't what Artie was doing, because he was just like, running bodge wires and throwing sparks. Yeah, and giving himself, hooking the computer up to some sort of black box that gave him a psychic connection or whatever? Right. Maybe. I I don't know if it was that or if he just got, like, zapped. You know, if he finally I, put... I suspect maybe he, uh, he got zapped into the internet. And uh, turned into the Freakazoid. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you used to be able to do it with a key sequence, but these days you you got to get right in there. Yeah, you know, they, they've really locked it down lately, because, you know, way too many freaking cats were walking across the keyboard. Right, exactly. <laughs> you got to really get in the guts. You got to be, like, and elbow like... deep in computer. The internet has only become a more scary place. Like, yeah. if if you turn into the Freakazoid back uh, when the internet was a lot smaller, yeah, back in the back in the nineties when like I, I you know I rewatched Freakazoid recently ish and I don't remember much, but I do remember that like Dexter talks about like a code book full of web addresses or something. Right. Uh... It was not made by, like, people who know what computers do. Especially not in, like, the 90s. Yeah. That show rules, though. Oh, it does. I love Freakazoid. Very good. Like, the whole premise is that he's a superhero whose only power is being very online. (laughs) And, you know, all his other powers. Yeah. And, you know, he's... More cartoonish than his enemies. He's electric or something. Right. He can travel arbitrarily fast, but only if it's funny at the time. Yeah. Like, he can go halfway around the Earth to yell at someone for raking a Zen garden too loud. (laughs) Uh, Apparently instantaneously. But most of the time when he has to get around, he just puts his arms out in front of him and makes airplane noises. Ah. Uh, anyways, please join us next week for a Freakazoid Watch podcast, which, now that I mentioned, does not sound like a bad idea. Yeah, I think that would actually be a lot of fun. 
But, I mean, uh, I think this might be the end of this particular episode of Warehouse 69. So we'll uh, be sure to see you guys next week when we take a look at episode three. The mystery episode. Say the line, Grace. Ah, uh, fuck. Um, follow your dreams? Is that the line? I don't the remember line the line. Is, it has been. Oh, over. fuck, damn it. Truly, it was a Warehouse 13. There we go. Now we can <laughs> sign off. <laughs> follow your dreams. They blew up my auntie's building, put out a great grandchildren. Who else in America deserves to have that feeling? Where else in America will they blow up your village? Don't knock me down, don't knock me down. I beg you, I'm just chilling. I fight you all, I'm willing. Just show me who's that villain. I don't see one, I don't see one. I can't find nobody. Chicago or Benghazi. A high rise without no lobby. Run up stairwells like Rocky. Cause these elevators so sloppy. Stop me.